Chapter 20 of The Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Angela Jeffries. The Frozen Pirate by William Clark Russell. Chapter 20 A Merry Evening. By the time we had reached the bottom of the hollow, Tassard was blowing like a bellows with the uncommon exertion, and swearing that he felt the cold penetrating his bones, and that he should be stupefied again if he did not mind. He climbed into the ship and disappeared. I loved him so little that secretly I very heartily wished that nature would make away with him. I mean that something it would be impossible in me to lay to my conscience should befall him, as becoming comatose again and so lying like one dead. Assuredly, in such a case, it was not this hand that would have wasted a drop of brandy in returning an evil, white-livered, hectoring old rascal to a life that smelled foully with him and the like of him. It was so still a day that the cold did not try me sorely. There was vitality, if not warmth, in the light of the sun, and I was heated with clamoring. So I stayed a full half-hour after my companion had vanished, examining the ice about the schooner, which careful inspection repaid me to the extent of giving me to see that if by blasts of gunpowder I could succeed in rupturing the ice ahead of the schooner's bows, there was a very good chance of the mass on which she lay going adrift. Yet I will not deny that though I recognized this business of dislocation as our only chance, for I could see little or nothing to be done in the way of building a boat proper to swim and ply, I foreboded a dismal issue to our adventure even should we succeed in separating this block from the main. In fine, what I feared was that the weight of the schooner would overset the ice and drown her and us. I entered the ship and found Tassard roasting himself in the cookhouse. "'How melancholy is this gloom,' said I, after the glorious white sunshine. "'Yes,' said he, "'but tis warm. This is enough for me. Curse the cold,' say I. It robs a man of all spirit.' To grapple with this rigor, one should have fed all one's life on blubber. I defy a man to be brave when he is half frozen. I feel a match for any three men now, but on the heights a flea would have made me run. He pulled a pot from the bricks and filled his pannikin. I have been surveying the ice, said I, drawing to the furnace, and have very little doubt that if we wisely bestow the powder in great quantities, we shall succeed in dislocating the bed on which we are lying. "'Good!' he cried. "'But after?' said I. "'What? "'As much of this bed as may be dislodged will not be deep. "'Icebergs, as of course you know, "'capsize in consequence of their becoming top-heavy "'by the wasting of the bulk that is submerged. "'This block will make but a small berg should we liberate it, "'and I very much fear that the weight of the schooner "'will overset it the instant we are launched.' "'Body of Moses!' he cried angrily knitting his brows, whereby he stretched the scar to half its usual width. What's to be done, then? She is a full ship, said I, and weighty. If the liberated ice be thin, she may sit upon it, and keep it under. We have a right to hope in that direction, perhaps. Yet there is another consequence. She may leak like a sieve. Why, he exclaimed, she took the ice smoothly. She has not been strained. She was as tight as a bottle before she stranded. The coating of ice will have cherished her, and a stout ship like this does not suffer from six months of lying up. Six months, thought I. 
Well, it may be as you say, but if she leaks, it will not be in our four arms to keep her free. He exclaimed hotly, Mr. Rodney, if we are to escape, we must venture something. To stay here means death in the end. I am persuaded that this ice is joined with some vast main body far south, and that it does not move. What is there, then, to wait for? There is promise in your gunpowder proposal. If she capsizes, then the devil will get his own. And with the savage flourish of the pannikin, he put it to his lips and drained it. His sullen determination that we should stand or fall by my scheme was not very useful to me. I had looked for some shrewdness in him, some capacity of originating and weighing ideas, but I found he could do little more than curse and swagger and ply his can, in which he found most of his antidotes and recollections, and not a little of his courage. I pulled up my watch, as I must call it, and observed that it was hard upon one o'clock. "'Tis lucky,' said he, eyeing the watch greedily, and coming to it away from the great subject of our deliverance, as though the sight of the fine gold thing with its jewelled letter extinguished every other thought in him, that you removed that watch from Mendoza. But he will have carried other good things to the bottom with him, I fear. His flask and tobacco-box I took away, said I. He had nothing of consequence besides. "'They must go into the common chest,' cried he. "'Tis share and share, you know.' I said I, but what I found Mendoza is mine by the highest right under heaven. If I had not taken the things, they would now be at the bottom of the sea. What of that? cried he savagely. If we had not plundered the galleon, she might have been wrecked and taken all that she had down with her. Yet should such a consideration hinder a fair division as between us, between you who had nothing to do with the pillage, and me who risked my life in it? I said, Very well, be it all as you say, appearing to consent, for there is something truly absurd in an altercation about a few guineas' worth of booty in the face of our melancholy and most perilous situation. Though it not only enabled me to send a deeper glance into the mind of this man that I had yet been able to manage, but made me understand a reason for the bloody and furious quarrels which have again and again arisen among persons standing on the brink of eternity to whom a cup of drink or the sight of a ship had been more precious than the contents of the Bank of England. I set about getting the dinner. "'Whilst you are at that work,' cried he, starting up, "'I'll overhaul the pockets of the bodies on deck, and, picking up a chopper, away he went.' And I heard him cursing in his native tongue as he stumbled up to the companion ladder through the darkness in the cabin. His rapacity was beyond credence. There was an immense treasure in the hold, yet he could not leave the pockets of the two poor wretches on deck alone. I did not envy him his task. The frozen figures would bear a deal of hammering, and besides, he had to work in the cold. Ah, I thought with a groan, I should have left him to make one of them. I had finished my dinner by the time he arrived. He produced the watch I had taken from and returned to the mate's pocket when I had searched him for a tinder-box also a gold snuff-box set with diamonds, and a few Spanish pieces in gold. On seeing these things I remembered that I had found some rings and money in his pockets whilst overhauling him for means to obtain fire, but I held my peace. "'Should not we have been imbeciles to sacrifice these beauties?' he cried, viewing the watch and snuff-box with a rapturous grin. "'They were hard to come at, I expect.' "'No,' he answered pocketing them and turning to a piece of beef in the oven. I knocked away the ice, and after a little retching, 
got at the pockets. But poor Trentanove, do you know, his nose came away with the mask of ice. He is no longer lovely to the sight. He broke into a guffaw, then stuffed his mouth full, and talking in the intervals of chewing. There is nothing worth taking on Barrows. They are both overboard. Overboard, I cried. Why, yes, said he. They are no good on deck. I stood them against the rail, then tipped them over. This was an illustration of his strength I did not much relish. I doubt if I could have lifted Barrows, said I. Not you, he exclaimed, running his eye over me. A dead Dutchman would have had the weight of a fairy alongside Barrows. Well, Mr. Tassard, said I, since you are so strong, you will be very useful to our scheme. There is much to be done. Give me a sketch of your plans, that I may understand you, he exclaimed, continuing to eat very heartily. First of all, said I, we shall have to break the powder-barrels out of the magazine, and hoist them on the deck. There are tackles, I suppose. You should be able to find what you want among the boatswain's stores in the run, he replied. There are some splits wide enough to receive a whole barrel of powder, said I. I counted four such yawns, all happily lying in a line athwart, the ice past the bows. I proposed to sink these barrels twenty feet deep, where they must hang from a piece of spar across the aperture. He nodded. Have you any slow matches aboard? Plenty among the gunner's stores, he replied. There are but you and me, said I. These operations will take time. We must mind not to be blown up by one barrel whilst we are suspending another. We shall have to lower the barrels with their matches on fire, and they must be timed to burn an hour. Aye, certainly at least an hour, he exclaimed. Two hours would be better. Well, that must depend upon the number of parcels of matches we meet with. There will be a good many mines to spring, and one must not explode before another. Tis the united forces of the several blasts which we must reckon on. The contents of at least four more barrels of powder we must distribute amongst the other chinks and splits in such parcels as they will be able to receive. And then? And then, said I, we must await the explosion and trust to the mercy of heaven to help us. He made a hideous face, as if this was a sort of talk to nauseate him, and said, Do you propose that we should remain on board, or watch the effects from a distance? Why remain on board, of course, I answered. Suppose the mines liberated the ice on which the schooner lies, and it floated away. What should we, watching at a distance, do? True, cried he, but it is cursed perilous. The explosion might blow the ship up. No, it will not do that. We shall be bad engineers if we bring such a thing about. The danger will be, provided the schooner is released, in her capsizing, as I have pointed out. Enough, cried he, charging his pannikin for the third time. We must chance her capsizing. If I had a crew at my back, said I, I would carry an anchor and cable to the shoulder of the cliff at the end of the slope, to hold the ship if she swam. I would also put a quantity of provisions on the ice along with materials for making us a shelter, and the whole of the stock of coal, so we could go on supporting life here if the schooner capsized. Then, said he, you would remain ashore during the explosion? Most certainly, but as all these preparations would mean a degree of labor impractical by us two men, I am for the bold venture. Prepare and fire the mines, return to the ship, and leave the rest to Providence. 
he made another ugly face and indulged himself in a piece of profanity that was inexpressibly disgusting and mean in the mouth of a man who was used to cross himself when alarmed and swear by the saints but perhaps he knew even better than i how little he had to expect from providence he filled his pipe explaining that when he had smoked it out we should fail to work now that i had settled a plan i was eager to put it into practice hot and wild indeed with the impatience and hope of the castaway animated with the dream of recovering his liberty and preserving his life and i was the more anxious to set about the business at once on account of the weather being fair and still for it came on to blow a stormy wind again we should be forced as before under the hatches but i had to wait for the frenchman to empty his pipe he was so complete a sensualist that i believe nothing short of terror could have forced him to shorten the period of a pleasure by a second of time he went on puffing so deliberately with such leisurely enjoyment of the flavor of the smoke that i expected to see him fall asleep and my patience was becoming exhausted i jumped up but by this time his bowl held nothing but black ashes now he cried to work and he rose with a prodigious yawn and seized the lanthorn our first business was to hunt among the boatswain's stores in the run for tackles to hoist the powder barrels up with there was a good collection as might have been expected in a pirate whose commerce lay in slinging goods from other ships holds into her own but the ropes were frozen as hard as iron to remedy which we carried an armful to the cookhouse and left the tackles to lie and soften we also conveyed to the cookhouse a quantity of ratline stuff a thin rope used for making of the steps in the shroud ladders this being a line that would exactly serve to suspend the smaller parcels of powder in the splits before touching the powder barrels we put a lighted candle in the bull's eye lamp over the door and removed the lanthorn to a safe distance tassard was perfectly well acquainted with the contents of this storeroom and on my asking for the matches put his hand on one of several bags of them they varied in length some being six inches and some making a big coil there was nothing for it but to sample and test them and this i told tassard could be done that evening the main hatch was just forward of the gun-room bulkhead we seized a handspike apiece and went to work to prize the cover open it was desperate tough labor as bad as trying to open an oyster with a soft blade the frenchman broke out into many strange old-fashioned oaths in his own tongue imagining the hatch to be frozen but though i don't doubt the frost had something to do with it its obstinacy was mainly owing to time that had soldered it so to speak with the stubbornness that eighty and forty years will communicate to a fixture which ice has cherished and kept sound we got the hatch open at last be pleased to know that i am speaking of the hatch in the lower deck for there was another immediately over it on the upper or main deck and returning to the powder room rolled the barrels forward ready for slinging and hoisting away when we should have rigged it tackle aloft we had not done much but what we had done had eaten far into the afternoon i am tired and hungry and thirsty said the frenchman let us knock off we have made good progress no use opening the main deck hatch tonight the vessel is cold enough even when hermetically corked very well said i bringing my watch to the lanthorn and observing the time to be sundown so carefully extinguishing the castle in the bull's-eye lamp 
we took each of us a bag of matches and went to the cook room. There was neither tea nor coffee in the ship. I so pined for these soothing drinks that I would have given all the wine in the vessel for a few pounds of either one of them. A senseless, ungracious yearning indeed, in the face of the plenty that was aboard. But it was the plenty, perhaps, that provoked it. There was chocolate, which the Frenchman frothed and drank with hearty enjoyment. He also devoured handfuls of saccades, which he would wash down with wine. These things made me sick, and for drink I was forced upon the spirits and wine, the latter of which was so generous that it promised to combine with the enforced laziness of my life under hatches to make me fat, so that I am of the opinion, had we waited for the ice to release us, I should have become so corpulent as to prove a burden to myself. I mention this here, that you may find an excuse in it for the only act of folly in the way of drinking that I can lay to my account whilst I was in this pirate. For I must tell you that, on returning to the furnace, we, to refresh us after our labor, made a bowl of punch, of which I drank so plentifully that I began to feel myself very merry. I forgot all about the matches and my resolution to test them that night. The Frenchman, enjoying my condition, continued to pledge me till his little eyes danced in his head. Luckily for me, being at the bottom of a very jolly disposition, drink never served me worse than develop that quality in me. No man could ever say that I was quarrelsome in my cups. My progress was marked by stupid smiles, terminating in unmeaningful laughter. The Frenchman sang a ballad about love and Picardy, and the like, and I gave him Hearts of Oak, the sentiments of which song kept him shrugging his shoulders and drunkenly looking contempt. We continued singing alternately for some time, until he fell to setting up his throat when I was at work, and this confused and stopped me. He then favored me with what he called the pirate's dance, a very wild, grotesque movement, with no elegance whatever to be hurt by his being in liquor, and I think I see him now, whipping off his coat and sprawling and flapping about in high boots and a red waistcoat, flourishing his arms, snapping his fingers, and now and again bursting into a stave to keep step to. When he was done, I took the floor with hornpipe, whistling the air and double-shuffling, toe and heeling, and quivering from one leg to another very briskly. He lay back against the bulkhead, grasping a can half full of punch, roaring loudly at my antics, and when I sat down, breathless, would have had me go on, hiccuping that though he had known scores of English sailors, he had never seen that dance better performed. By this time I was extremely excited and extraordinarily merry, and losing hold of my judgment, began to indulge in sundry pleasantries concerning his nation and countrymen, asking with many explosions of laughter how it was that they continued at the trouble of building ships for us to use against them, and if he did not think that the flower de laus, a neater symbol for people who put snuff into their soup and restricted their ablutions to their faces than the tricolor, being too muddled to consider that he was ignorant of that flag, and in short, I was so offensive, in spite of my ridiculous merriment, that his savage nature broke out. He assailed the English with every injurious term in his drunken condition suffering him to recollect, and starting up with his little eyes wildly rolling, he clasped his hands to his side, as if feeling for a sword, and calling me a very ugly French word, bade me come on, and he would show me the difference between a Frenchman and a beast of an Englishman. I laughed at him with all my might, 
which so enraged him that, swaying to right and left, he advanced as if to fall upon me. I started to my feet and tumbled over the bench I had jumped from, and lay sprawling, and the bench oversetting close to him, he kicked against it and fell too, fetching the deck a very hard blow. He groaned heavily and muttered that he was killed. I tried to rise, but my legs gave way, and then the fumes of the punch overpowered me, for I recollect no more. When I awoke it was pitch dark. My hands, legs, and feet seemed formed of ice, my head of burning brass. I thought I was in my cot, and felt with my hands till I touched Tassard's cold, bald head, which so terrified me that I uttered a loud cry and sprang erect. Then recollection returned, and I heartily cursed myself for my folly and wickedness. Good God, thought I, that I should be so mad as to drown my senses when never was any wretch in such need of all his reason as I. The boatswain's tinder-box was in my pocket. I groped, found a candle, and lighted it. It was twenty minutes after three in the morning. Tassard lay on his back, snoring hideously, his legs overhanging the capsized bench. I pulled and hauled at him, but he was too drunk to awake, and that he might not freeze to death, I fetched a pile of clothes out of his cabin and covered him up, and put his head on a coat. My head ached horribly, but not worse than my heart, when I considered how our orgy might have ended in bloodshed and murder, how I had insulted God's providence by drinking and laughing and roaring out songs and dancing at a time when I most needed his protection with death standing close beside me, as I may say, I could have beaten my head against the deck in the anguish of my contrition and shame. My passion of sorrow was so extravagant, indeed, that I remember looking at the Frenchman as if he was the devil incarnate, who had put himself in my way to thaw and recover, that he might tempt me on the loss of my soul. Fortunately, these fancies did not last. I was parched with thirst, but the water was ice, and there was no fire to melt it with. So I broke off some chips and sucked them, and held a lump to my forehead. I went to my cabin and got into my hammock, but my head was so hot, and ached so furiously, and I was so vexed with myself besides, that I could not sleep. The schooner was deathly still, there was not apparently the faintest murmur of air to awaken an echo in her. Nothing spoke but the near and distant cracking of the ice. It was miserable work lying in the cabin sleepless and reproaching myself, and as my burning head robbed the cold of its formidableness, I resolved to go on deck and take a brisk turn or two. The night was wonderfully fine, the velvet dusk so crowded with stars that in parts it resembled great spaces of cloth of silver hovering. I turned my eyes northwards to the stars low down there and thought of England, and the home where I was brought up until the tears gathered and with them went something of the dreadful burning aching out of my head. Those distant, silent, shining bodies amazingly intensified the sense of my loneliness and remoteness, and yonder southern cross and the luminous dust of the magellic clouds seemed not farther off than my native country. It is not in language to express the savage naked beauty, the wild mystery of the white still scenes of ice shining back to the stars with a light that owed nothing to their glory nor conveying how the whole was heightened to every sense by the element of fear, put into the pictures by the sound of the splitting ice and the softened regular roaring of the breakers along the coast. 
I started with fresh shame and horror when I contrasted this ghastly calmness of pale ice and the brightness of the holy stars looking down upon it with our swinish revelry in the cabin, and I thought with loathing of the drunken ribaldry of the pirate and my own tipsy songs piercing the ear of the mighty spirit of this solitude. The exercise improved my spirits. I stepped the length of the little raised deck briskly, my thoughts very busy. On a sudden, the ice split on the starboard hand with the noise louder than the explosion of a twenty-four-pounder. The schooner swayed to a level keel with so sharp a rise that I lost my balance and staggered. I recovered myself, trembling, and greatly agitated by the noise and the movement coming together, without the least hint having been given me, and grasping a backstay waited, not knowing what was to happen next, unless it be the heave of an earthquake. I can imagine no motion capable of giving one such swooning, nauseating, terrifying sensation as the rending of ice under a fixed ship. In a few moments there were several sharp cracks, all on the starboard side, like a snapping of musketry, and I felt the schooner very faintly heave, but this might have been a deception of the senses, for though I set star against the masthead and watched it, there was no movement. I looked over the side and observed that the split I had noticed on the face of the cliff had by this rupture been extended traversely right across the schooner's starboard bow, the thither side being several feet higher than on this. It was plain that the bed on which the vessel rested had dropped as to bring her upright, and I was convinced by this circumstance alone, that if I used good judgment in disposing of the powder the weight of the mass would complete its own dislocation. I stepped a little way forward to obtain a clearer sight of the splits about the schooner, and on putting my head over, I was inexpressibly dismayed and confounded by the apparition of a man with his arms stretched out before him, his face upturned, and his posture that of starting back as though terrified at beholding me. I had met with several frights whilst I had been on this island, but none worse than this none that so completely paralyzed me as to very nearly deprive me of the power of breathing. I stared at him, and he seemed to stare at me, and I know not which of the two was the more motionless. The whiteness made a light of its own, and he was perfectly plain. I blinked and puffed, conceiving it might be some illusion of the wine I had drunk, and finding him still there, and acting as though he warded me off in terror, as if my showing myself unawares had led him to think me the devil. I say finding him perfectly real, I was seized with an agony of fear, and should have been rushed to my cabin had my legs been equal to the task of transporting me there. Then, thought I, idiot that you are! What think you, you fool? It is but the body of Tretinove. Sure enough it was, and putting my head a little farther over the rail, I saw the figure of the Portuguese Barros lying close under the bends. No doubt it was the movement of the ice that had shot the Italian into the lifelike posture. It being indescribable, he should have fallen so on being trampled overboard by the Frenchman. But there he was, resting against a lump of ice, looking as living in his frozen posture as ever he had shown in the cabin. The shock did my head good. I went below and got into my cot, and after tossing for half an hour or so fell asleep. I awoke and went to the cookhouse, where I found Tassard preparing the breakfast, and a great fire burning. I hardly knew what reception he would give me, 
and what therefore not a little agreeably surprised by his thanking me for covering him up you have a stronger head than mine said he the punch used you well you made me laugh though you was very diverting ay much too diverting to please myself said i and i sounded him cautiously to remark what his memory carried of my insults but found that he recollected nothing more than i danced with vigour and sang well i said nothing about my contrition my going on deck and the like contenting myself with asking if he had heard the explosion in the night no cried he staring and looking eagerly well then said i there has happened a mighty crack in the ice and i do soberly believe that with the blessing of god we shall be able by blasts of powder to free the block on which the schooner rests good cried he come let us hurry with this meal how is the weather quiet i believe i have not been on deck since the explosion around me early this morning whilst we ate he said suppose we get the schooner afloat what do you propose why i answered if she proved tight and seaworthy why but carry her home what you and i alone no said i certainly not we must make shift to sail her to the nearest port and ship a crew he looked at me attentively and said what do you mean by home england said i he shrugged his shoulders and exclaimed in french tis natural then proceeding in english pray said he showing his fangs do not you know that the boca del dragoon is a pirate do you want to be hanged that you propose to carry her to a port to ship men i have no fear of that said i after all these years she'll be clean forgotten as if she had never had existence look ye here mr rodney cried he in a passion let's have no more of this snivelling nonsense about years you may be as mad as you please on that point but it shan't hang me it needs more than a few months to make men forget a craft that has carried on such traffic as our hold represents you'll not find me venturing myself nor the schooner into any of your ports for men no no my friend i am in no stupor now you know and i've slept the punch off also did you see what betray our treasure and be hanged for our generosity he made me an iconical bow grinning with wrath let's get the schooner afloat first said i ay that's all very well he cried but better stop here than dangling chains no my friend our plan must be very different one from your proposal i suppose you want your share of the booty said he snapping his fingers i deserve it said i smiling that i might soften his passion and yet you would convey the most noted pirate of the age with plunder in her to the value of thousands of doubloons to a port in which we should doubtless find ships of war a garrison magistrates governors prisons and the whole of the machinery it is our business to give our stern to ma foi mr rodney sure you are out in something more than your reckoning of time what do you propose said i ha he exclaimed whilst his little eyes twinkled with cunning now you speak sensibly what do i propose this my friend we must navigate the schooner to an island and bury the treasure then head for the shipping highways and obtain help from any friendly merchantmen we may fall in with home with us means the tortugas there we shall find the company we need to recover for us what we shall have hidden 
We shall come by our own, then. But to sail with this treasure on board, without a crew to defend the vessel, by this hand? The first cruiser that sighted us would make a clean sweep, and then, ho, for the hangman, Mr. Rodney. How much I relished the scheme, you will imagine, but to reason with him would have been mere madness. I knitted my brows, and seemed to reflect, and then said, Well, there's a great deal of plain good sense in what you say. I certainly see the wisdom of your advice in recommending that we should bury the treasure. Nor must we leave anything on board to convict the ship of her true character. His greedy eyes sparkled with self-complacency. He tapped his forehead and cried, Trust to this. There is mine behind this surface. Your plan for releasing the schooner is great. Mine for preserving the treasure is great, too. You are the sailor, I the strategist. By combining our genius, we shall oppose an invulnerable front to adversity, and must end our days as princes. Your hand, Paul. I laughed and gave him my hand, which he squeezed with many contortions of face and figure. But though I laughed, I don't know that I ever so much disliked and distrusted and feared the old leering rogue as at that moment. Come, cried I, jumping up, let's get about our work. And with that I pulled open a bag of matches and fell to testing them. They burnt well. The fire ate into them as smoothly as if they had been prepared the day before. They were all of one thickness. I cut them to equal lengths and fired them and waited watch in hand. One was burnt out in two minutes before the other, and each length took about ten minutes to consume. This was good enough to base my calculations upon. End of chapter 20 Recording by Angela Jeffries, Shelbyville, Illinois